Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. Hello. Today's two-part episode of Hometown History Europe explores a Nazi massacre in France. It's an important event that more people should know about. But bear in mind that some of the details may be upsetting. It's a bright and pleasant afternoon in the French countryside. And here we are in the village of Ouradjou-Souglin. And we are walking down Avenue du 10 Juin. It may sound rather strange to have a street named after a date, the 10th of June. But the reason why will become clear very soon. On the air, we can smell the fresh croissant and quiche pastries of the Boulangerie Sénon, an artisan patisserie on our right. And just a little further down the street, we pass the Le Milan restaurant serving French cuisine. And opposite the florist, there is a tall and slender steeple of a Catholic church called Église Saint-Martin. A few steps more, though, the street opens up and we are out of the village centre. And before us, we see a roundabout heading off into lush green fields and thick, pretty trees and forests up on the hills. But then, something very odd and out of place captures the eye. It's just down the road ahead, on the right, and it looks like huge rusted steel blades that are wedged into the ground, into the grass. It's almost like some massive machine has fallen from the sky and giant shards of pointed metal have stabbed the landscape round here, stuck so deep that they don't look like they could ever be removed. So we head across the grass to take a closer look, and soon we see that this is not a crashed aircraft, it's not a bizarre art sculpture, because these blades have a doorway. This is a building. And written on the rusty metal, we see these words. Village Martyr Centre de la Mémoire which means Village of Martyrs, Centre for Memory. So if this strange and brutal-looking building just outside of Orjado is to remember something, what is it? Well, we push through the revolving doors and find ourselves in a large concrete lobby, and we are then immediately met with a sign on the wall, a symbol, which cannot help but make us slow our step. There is a gigantic and still shocking symbol of the Nazi swastika on the wall. It's a part of a huge photograph of Adolf Hitler rallying the huge crowds at Nuremberg. These were the giant propaganda events that played a seminal role in convincing Germany 
that it would be better under Nazi control. And there before us is Hitler himself, surrounded by swastika flags and standing before a crowd of thousands. He's in full uniform, and he is there to inspire the people to do what he believes will be great and necessary acts to further his cause. Yet on the wall it says, Souviens-toi, which means lest you forget. And as we walk through this somber place, remembering, we see windows that look out onto what looks like the ruins of another village. And it looks a world away from the cheerful and busy Urhajur Suglan that we just walked through. And yet, that graveyard of buildings out there that we're looking at used to be the original Urhajur Suglan. What happened here? We walk further into the exhibition and come to a corridor where the walls are filled with hundreds and hundreds of black and white photographs of people who, up until one horrendous day, lived happily in those buildings out there, those ruined homes. In the days before a new Urhajil was ever even needed. And these are the people who we've come to remember today. 642 men, women and children who were massacred at the hands of the Nazis here on June the 10th, 1944. It is a shocking, moving and dramatic story. And there is mystery to it too. Why did the Nazi SS choose to annihilate this village and its inhabitants one sunny afternoon in June? Well... I'm Peter Laws, and today on Hometown History Europe, we remember a tragedy that has been strangely and sadly overlooked by many people outside of France. But it's a story you should know, a chilling reminder of how political extremism can lead to atrocities that should never have come to this place. And yet here they are, wedged into the soil, never to be forgotten and impossible to remove. It's known as the worst Nazi war crime in France. This is the massacre of Ochlajur Suglin and the village of the martyrs. Up until 1944, Urhajur Suglin was a small farming village strewn with wide fields and deep forests. Locals would fish for trout and crayfish in the trickling streams, and it was known for its pleasant countryside and good dining. The hotel at the time, the Hotel Milford, was well known for its regional specialities. And the village had its own brass and wind orchestra and a thriving musical society. The women of the village would sew gloves for the saint Junian factories and textile merchants. The last census of this village was taken in 1936, and it said that 330 people lived in Urhajil, with around 1,574 other residents spread out in smaller hamlets and farms nearby. In the early summer of 1944, this village had been largely protected from the effects of the Nazi occupation of France. They had plenty of bread and poultry. In fact, no German soldier had even set foot in Urajo since November the 11th, 1942. And even that was just an uneventful passing through. 
Life was, in the words of one survivor, very agreeable, even in those first few months of 1944. So much so that refugees from the war were drawn to this place. It was a haven in which to live. A fairly typical, unremarkable place. And that's the point. Ukhrajor was so normal and unremarkable that historians can still only theorize on why the Nazis chose to obliterate it and its inhabitants in 1944. It happened at a time when German frustration was at boiling point. Just four days before the village was attacked, the Allied forces of the US, Canada and Britain and others had landed in Normandy, France. This was known as the D-Day landings, the biggest invasion ever assembled before or indeed since. And this formidable military move would ultimately lead to the liberation of France from the Nazis and the end of the Second World War. The D-Day landings were a cause for celebration, and yet French civilians were faced with the German army in retreat back through their country, and to end up in the path of these armies could potentially become deadly. I'm going to walk you through the events of what happened in Urajur, and I warn you that some listeners may find this challenging. It was 1.45 on Saturday, June the 10th, and the weather in Urajur had been chilly with rain that morning, but as the afternoon began, the sun was out and it was light and warm. Even though it was a Saturday, children were in school because in Urajo, they followed the French custom of Saturdays having school with Thursdays off. The children were set to have a medical examination that afternoon. The villagers were going about their business. The baker, for example, was making cakes. The barber was starting to welcome customers. But then, two armoured vehicles suddenly rolled toward the south entrance to the village. And each of these vehicles carried about 12 German soldiers, and their weapons were drawn. The appearance of the soldiers could not be ignored, and so the curious and worried villagers started to step out of their shops and houses just to watch these vehicles roll through. Some were frightened, but others, like a 19-year-old mechanic called Robert Hebras, wasn't worried at all. He worked in a place nearby called Limoges, and he saw armed German soldiers there all the time. So he shrugged at all of this and told his friends not to be alarmed. Don't worry, he said, they won't eat us. Besides, Hebras had his papers in order, so what was the big deal? Soldiers sometimes did checks in Nazi-occupied France. Hebras's 17-year-old friend, however, was not so relaxed. His name was Martial Brissin, and he headed home, but he didn't go directly. He tried to stay out of sight of the soldiers, taking the long way. And when he got back, he went up to hide in the attic of his home. A mechanic and his assistant were also worried about the arrival of the soldiers, and they tried to get away by heading out over the fields. They didn't get very far, because as they made their escape, thinking they hadn't been seen, they suddenly heard the whizzing of bullets flying past their heads. So they quickly spun on their feet and rushed away from the shots, heading back into retreat toward the village again. And they hid in a walled garden. Now at this point, the other villagers don't seem to have heard those distant gunshots. Around the same time, another villager, 
a 20-year-old man called Marcel D'Artou was on his way to get his hair cut. He stopped dead when he saw the soldiers. By now, three more German trucks had arrived in the village. Unlike Robert Hebras, D'Artou was scared and he ran home, and yet he didn't feel safe even there. So he too rushed out over the fields and he was trying to get towards the Glan River. And that's when he saw them. A line of German soldiers had formed a circle around the entire village. And so with no clear means of escape, he headed back home where his wife and mother were. And only a few seconds after, a German soldier hammered on the door. He strode into their kitchen and instructed them all to get outside. The Germans were doing this throughout Orador that day, moving from house to house and shop to shop, instructing anybody present to step outside. Like a 25-year-old delivery man called Clément Broussaudier, he had cycled in from a neighboring hamlet so that he could get a haircut. In fact, he was sitting in the barber's chair halfway through the cut when two soldiers walked inside and told him and the barber to get outside. Clément tried to explain that he was from out of town and that he needed to take his bike so he could get home later. And the soldier's words to him were chilling. He said, don't bother. You won't need it anymore. He joined everybody else in a line that was heading toward the village green. And as they all filed along, the town crier Jean de Piafiche was ordering people to assemble on the green. He was simply following the soldiers' instructions. There would be a check of their identity papers there, it was said. Robert Hebras, who had been so confident before, somehow forgot to take his papers with him. As the locals all gathered on the village green, they were too far from some of the houses to hear the gunshots that were starting. But the soldiers had already began the shooting. They were killing anybody who was bedbound or unable to walk to the green like a paralyzed man who was killed in his bed. Yet the school was close enough to hear the shots. At 2 p.m., a seven-year-old schoolboy called Roger Gaufrin was in class with his two sisters. The 33-year-old teacher, Feno Gouchon, heard the shots and immediately told the children to lie on the floor. But it was no use, because a Nazi officer burst into the schoolroom and aimed the barrel of his submachine gun at the children. And he barked out a single word, which means out in German. Just after he'd said that, the soldier turned to speak to the teacher, and while this was happening, little Roger sensed an opportunity. He tried to get his sisters to run away with him, but they wouldn't move a muscle. So Roger decided to run himself. He raced outside, heart pounding, and he gasped when he saw some German soldiers ahead. They lifted their guns and they shot at him. The boy dropped to the ground, pretending to be dead, and a soldier came up to check that the kid wasn't still alive. He kicked him hard in the kidneys. And Roger managed not to react to this, and so the soldier shrugged and moved off, satisfied that the child was indeed dead. Yet once the soldier was out of sight, Roger sprang to his feet again and ran for the woods behind the cemetery. And then he froze. 
Two German soldiers were waiting by the cemetery gate. They whistled for him, and he was amazed to see that they showed him some mercy. They told Roger to keep running and to get away. He did as he was told, and he managed to reach the river, where he found Bobby, a black and white dog that he knew from the village. Roger took the dog and tried to hide them both behind a tree, but then six soldiers approached in a vehicle. And despite his best efforts to hide, they saw him, and they immediately lifted their weapons and opened fire. Thinking fast, Roger leapt up and threw himself into the river, and he swam across the water. Bobby, however, did not follow, so the soldiers shot the dog dead. Terrified and exhausted, Roger, who was, remember, only seven years old, managed to get to the other side, and dripping wet, he hid behind a huge oak tree. Back on the green, most of the villagers had now assembled, including all of the children from the village's four schools. Over 600 people had gathered on the grass, and now they waited. Many were scared, but some were still quite relaxed, assuming this really was what they said it was going to be, a routine identity check. The town baker, for example, Maurice Compin, felt so confident that he asked a soldier if he could nip back to the bakery to take his cakes out of the oven. He was worried that they might burn. The officer just smiled at him and said, Don't worry about your cakes, we'll see to them. By 3pm, everybody had gathered, and that's when things took a darker turn. The soldiers told the men to move toward the left of the green and the women and children to the right. Now separated, the men could do nothing when the women and children were escorted off the green. Almost half an hour passed while the men were left on the grass, baking under the hot sun with no shade, Then finally, a German officer spoke to the crowd through an interpreter, and he said that his officers would now search the village homes for illegal terrorist weapons. While this happened, the men would be escorted to some barns and sheds to wait in the shade. Anybody with such weapons would be in trouble, but everybody else, they were assured, would then be set free once the search was complete. For the majority of the men, therefore... This was good news, since all they owned were simple hunting rifles and the officer had said that these were acceptable. And so they breathed again. This ordeal would be over soon. And so they headed for the barns as instructed. The 200 men of the village were split into six groups, the largest of which had 60 men in them. As they marched to the barns, they started to see worrying signs around the village. There were mounted machine guns set up in the street. Whenever they slowed their pace to look at these things, the soldiers would shove them in the back with the butt of their rifles, moving them along. The men were herded into various sheds and stone barns, and once inside, some of the men went to sit on the hay bales, but the soldiers ordered them to get back up and stand against the rear wall of this stuffy, hot barn. The men were still not too worried at this point, thinking that the weapons search of their houses would take some time. They would just have to wait. But then, a man called Joseph Bergman, a refugee, said that he overheard something from an officer. And he whispered to the others that the plan was to shoot them all. The men, he told, shook their heads and thought that Bergman was overreacting. Until seconds later, when they heard a sickening sound from outside. 
It was the sound of gunshots ringing out from the village green. They looked at each other in shock, but before they even had time to think, the barn itself erupted into gunfire. The soldiers unleashed their machine guns and opened fire on the men's legs. In fright and pure agony, every man fell to the dusty ground, and many of the men were already dead, but others were still alive, like Robert Hebras, who was so confident before that all would be well. Now terrified, he found himself trapped under a pile of bleeding bodies, but amazingly, he was not hit himself. And so Robert just lay there, completely still, desperately trying not to make a sound while he started to hear something. The soldiers were working their way through the bodies in the barn, prodding them with pitchforks to check who might still be alive. Some of the soldiers were laughing as they did it. A soccer player next to Robert Hebras started to make a groaning sound, and the soldiers quickly shot him. The bullet went through this man and went straight into Robert's right arm. And despite this excruciating pain, he clenched his teeth together and tried not to make a sound. Then, the soldiers brought wood and straw and kindling into the barn, and they scattered them on top of the bodies. And then they pulled the valuable animals out of the barn, and then they lit the kindling on fire. Some of the men, including Robert Hebras, were still alive as the flames burst into life. And every now and then, they would chance a luck to see if the soldiers had left yet, but they hadn't. There were two officers waiting at the entrance, with submachine guns trained on the bodies. So the men had to somehow keep still and silent as the flames grew around them. But then... The smoke and the heat from the fire became so strong that the two soldiers outside had to back away. That just shows you how hot and strong it must have been for the men themselves in the barn. The soldiers backed off and closed the barn door. Now the men were left alone, and those surviving started to whisper desperately to the bodies around them, saying, Is anybody alive? Some were, and they answered, But the machine gun bullets had broken and even severed many of the men's legs. Others struggled to move under the weight of all the bodies that had fallen on them. However, four of the men managed to get up and they pushed through the fire and the smoke and they were able to find a way out. They staggered outside, gasping in the fresh air. One of them was a man called Mathieu Bori and he managed to remove some stones from the barn wall. He made a hole big enough for other survivors to crawl through, but they quickly had to hide again when two German soldiers turned up, shooting guns up into the hayloft and lighting more fires. Five of these men managed to creep away from the flaming barn, but their route of escape, Cemetery Road, was useless. They could see soldiers waiting there on patrol. So the men had to hide inside some nearby rabbit hutches instead, They were made of brick and were big enough just about to fit them. And from there, the men could keep an eye on the soldiers, but also to watch the fire in the barn growing in ferocity. 
As they waited, other men were facing the wrath of the SS, like a group of cyclists elsewhere in the village. One of these men was a 35-year-old American-born man called Albert Mirabon, and his mother, Anna Chenon, had been born in Urado, but she moved to the U.S. to marry. Albert was born in New Jersey, yet after her husband died, Anna had moved her and Albert back to Urado. During the Nazi occupation, Albert had become a member of the Maquis, a guerrilla band of French resistance fighters. They happened to be on a mission near Orador that day, so Albert had been riding his bike to that mission, yet he had made the fateful decision to make a detour on the way so he could visit his mother, Anna, in the village. But three Nazi soldiers saw him, and they ordered him off his bike and commanded that he stand against a wall, and along with six other cyclists, they were all shot dead. This seemingly normal summer's day in an ordinary French village had turned into pure nightmare, but there was worse to come. Join me in the next episode where we'll learn what happened to the women and children who were marched away from the village green. And in the aftermath of the massacre and the war, we'll examine the subsequent trial, asking why did Nazi officers choose this village in particular? And we'll consider the legacy that Urador leaves today and how quickly people seem to forget about what happened in this little village. Well, I'm Peter Laws, and I hope you can join me for the next episode in this two-part special as we remember what is known as the worst Nazi war crime in France, the massacre of Urador Suglin and the village of the martyrs. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.